Hey everyone, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. As always, it's Mike Wall. Today, we have an extraordinary treat. The official Star Trek science consultants are back to talk all about their contributions to Season 4 of Star Trek Discovery. Dr. Aaron McDonald has a PhD in gravitational astrophysics from the University of Glasgow, and her research contributed to the LIGO collaboration, whose discoveries led to the 2017 Nobel Prize in Physics. She's now the official science consultant for the Star Trek universe, and you can see her handiwork literally all over Disco Season 4. Erin's also recently started her own production company, which you'll tell us more about in just a bit. Dr. Mohammed Noor is a professor of biology and dean of natural sciences at Duke University. His lab studies genetics and evolution, mainly through the lens of Drosophila, the fruit fly, which they use as a model organism. He is an occasional science consultant on Star Trek, often deputized to come in and help whenever there is a particularly biological plot point that needs developing. And oh was there in season four. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this tour of the science behind Star Trek Discovery's latest season. Let's fly. I am beyond excited to welcome Dr. Aaron McDonald and Dr. Mohammed Noor back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast to talk Woo! all about the science in Star Trek Discovery's fourth season. Welcome, both of you. Hi, so happy to be back. This is Pleasure. delightful. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I've been loving the podcast all season. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, I, I love all of my guests that I have on the show, and I think every episode is fantastic. But honestly, there is no day that gets me as excited or pumped up as a scientist or as a Trekkie as days like today when I get to talk to the actual <laughs> Star Trek science consultants, the people who make it happen, uh, the people who put science in Star Trek. So this is so wonderful. I'm glad and honored that you have taken a little bit of time out of your days to talk with me. So just diving into Star Trek Discovery season four. Oh, actually, wait, before we do that, Aaron, I believe you have a job update related to this whole Star Trek thing that we keep talking about. So, um... Thank you. Yeah, sort of related. Um, at the beginning of this year, I've been looking at sort of the next steps that I want to do after being a science advisor for Star Trek, because that's mm -hmm. like pretty amazing. Um, and so I've started moving into screenwriting. And then this year, I started my own production company as part of that. And we are in production on our first short film that I'm actually co-producing with Mary. Mary Chifo, our Chancellor Laurel, and it's a queer sci-fi. We're filming it. Full production is happening mid-April, and then we'll be sending it out to festivals this summer. So it's called Every Morning, and you can follow my production company at Spacetime Films. It's called Spacetime Productions, to the wow. surprise of no one. I love that you're following like the the previous folks, like Andre Barmatis went on to be like a you know producer and then showrunner and stuff like that. So maybe you'll have a show soon Thanks. called The Wilbur. <laughs> that was a deep joke man that was pretty good in north carolina <laughs> all right you might have to explain that joke to me i don't think i got Orville it wilbur uh right 
the right oh, thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was yeah, Steve. Yeah, I, was yeah. <laughs> it was fairly yeah. random. You're forgiven. <laughs> <laughs> Great. All right. Um, yeah, so congratulations on, on the job. I remember when uh, we had both of you on a whole year ago for season three of Discovery, you mentioned that you were starting to do a little bit of writing, and uh, it's so cool to see that officially a part of your job now, in, in addition to producing. <laughs> Thank Great. you. Yeah. I'll keep an eye out for, for your new film. Um, all right. So diving into Star Trek Discovery season four, first of all, the season was absolutely amazing on all levels. Um, and I think it was the first time ever that a scientific issue really underpinned the entire plot of a season of Star Trek. Uh, and for me, that was just really glorious to watch. Um, so the first half of the season centered upon trying to understand this mysterious and very dangerous astrophysical phenomenon called the dark matter anomaly or DMA. And the second half focused on trying to make first contact with the DMA's creator species 10C, who I'm a little bummed that we didn't actually get to learn their real names, but okay, we'll just call them the 10C. <laughs> um, it's, so the real name is 25% fear, 15 I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. We'll, we'll get into all that language uh, in due course. Um, so, yeah, the season struck me as very astrophysics heavy at the beginning, you know, and then suddenly very biology heavy at the end. Um, so I've structured my questions sort of that way in which there are a lot of questions for Aaron at the beginning and then a lot of questions for Mohammed at the end. But please feel free to jump in and comment on anything at any point in time. So first question is for both of you, though. Um, Given that this was such a science-centric season, that science was really at the core of season four, how early on were you two involved with the writing and conceptualization of the season? For me, certainly, it was pretty early on, right when they were breaking out. It's sort of like a mini room, you know, where they just get a few people together to bounce some ideas around. And then I was brought in. They had this idea, like you said, for this sort of big threat, this big existential threat, but they wanted it to be very, as you said, kind of scientific and astrophysics based. And so, um, yeah, I was kind of brought in pretty early on to come up with some of those ideas or help them come up with some of those ideas of what that would look like, how it would be tied, where the species could be and all of those details. I came in just shortly after, or actually, I don't know, shortly. I came in after Dr. Aaron McDonald did. So um, I know, I know, for example, for you, Dr. Aaron, I remember you had told me some of the things that were brewing before the first call. The first call I was on was in May, 2020, just to give you like a length of time Whoa. to it. Yeah. And honestly, like you said, the first couple of calls was, I mean, there was a little bit of talk, like we're, we need these really, really alien aliens, but like 95% of the call was about the DMA or as, as at the time, I think they were calling it the space Roomba. <laughs> the space <Yeah>. Roomba. <laughs> I see. Yeah, I guess uh, behind the scenes, it wasn't a mystery what the DMA actually was. But, uh, you know, for us on screen, we had to wait until uh, the latter half of the season to actually find out what it was doing. But yeah, sucking up uh, Boronite. Is that right? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah, we'll yeah. get into that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, so uh, the season begins with the dark matter anomaly destroying Quajon, a book's homeworld. Uh, with massive gravitational waves. So I think we should just begin with the basics. And by basics, I mean cutting edge astrophysics <laughs> that require PhDs to understand. Uh, but not, uh, hopefully, um, yeah, Aaron, you can put this in terms that, uh, that non-PhD astrophysicists can, can understand. Could you remind us what dark matter is and what gravitational waves are? 
Yeah. So kind of early on, we basically, what we're seeing is this huge gravitational presence was really what we were looking for is that, and we saw it through some like gravitational lensing that was happening. And you saw in those first couple episodes, realizing that there was like a space station that wasn't affected. And then it was Quajon that was affected and it was the same thing. And they were multiple light years apart, but you couldn't see a blob that was light years across, you know, moving through and hitting things. And that's really where that dark matter came in because dark matter interacts gravitationally with our universe, but we can't quote unquote, see it in traditional ways with light reflecting or being emitted from it. And so that's why we maybe not super artistically inspired, call it dark matter from an astrophysics perspective, because it just has this mass. It has a gravitational presence, but it doesn't have any light associated with it, which is why you didn't see this big dark blob that, that hit all of those at once. And then in terms of like the gravitational waves and the radiation coming off of that, it really was just a way to show that it's a dynamic thing. And gravitational waves were first thought of by Einstein when it was asked, he was asking that exact question, when you have matter in the universe and it moves or it shifts, or there's any perturbation to it, that change is going to propagate through the fabric of space-time in this, in this waveform at the speed of light. And so those, those two effects were really what we were seeing early on. Um, it wasn't dark. It was just literally a gravitational presence and it had compounding effects on the area around it. So uh, just to uh, ask a little bit deeper about the dark matter, was the DMA, I guess, constructed to use dark matter in some sort of fashion? I guess jumping ahead to thinking about its purpose, as we said, it's basically a space Roomba. Uh, in your mind, as the person who gets to decide what uh, you know the physics in Star Trek looks like, was species tendency utilizing dark matter in, in any way, or was it just an accidental sort of thing that the DMA uh, had? happened to, to attract, I guess. Yeah, good question. No, we had, um, it was really more taking into account the fact that only 4% of our universe is what we can see and interact with. And dark matter makes up almost a quarter, like 25%. And so just that percentage ratio as this dredge was moving through our universe, it was acquiring a lot of dark matter as one would expect that there's a lot of dark matter out there. So it was really just extrapolating what those percentages are and carrying that forward. I see. Yeah. That makes a ton of sense. Cool. Good. <laughs> Good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to be wiping my brow a lot during this because I'm like, okay, fast. Okay, good. <laughs> it sense to me. I'm not sure if uh, I'm the authority on, on all this stuff, but uh, no, it's, it's great. Uh, now, next question is about the gravitational wave aspect. So one of the most epic scenes uh, in the entire season was the scene where Book is so emotional and desperate to try to understand this thing that destroyed his home world that he flies his ship straight into the center of the DMA looking for answers, but he can't find them and it's getting too dangerous and he has to just reverse course and escape its gravitational clutches. But he can't until a brilliant suggestion comes in from Lieutenant Commander Bryce. And uh, with some help of Captain Burnham, Book is able to basically time his trajectory out of the DMA just right so that he can ride a gravitational wave out of it. Uh, like like a surfer rides uh, an ocean wave. And so my question here is, because I don't really know anything about gravitational waves, is can you do that with a gravitational <laughs> wave? Can you surf a gravitational wave? Good question. Um, this is where we have to expand a little bit away from science and into science fiction. And that's mostly just actually 
to make it more relatable to the audience watching it. Mm. One of the things that we have to do as sort of science advisors is make sure that we don't pull people out by having something that's counterintuitive. And gravitational waves are not very intuitive. They um, have what we call a quadrupolar nature. So you can imagine kind of stretching and shrinking in an X formation and then stretching and shrinking in like a plus sign formation. And that's really what gravitational waves do in our universe. That's why LIGO is shaped like an L because when it goes by, it's going to make one of those arms shorter and one of those arms longer. And so really a good analogy for the waves, how they do look is a little bit less like water waves and more like sound waves, more like compression waves, but compression waves that sort of propagate a little bit differently. And the ones that hit us are incredibly small. So we never feel or see that. Now, the question of like, if you could actually ride that energy, they are carrying energy. And so I think like, you know, we're in the science fiction realm where thousands of years in the future, the fact that like the engines do interact with space-time to some extent with warp and impulse and high energy and all of these, you can imagine that they do have some capability to tap into that compression wave as it were. But all those visuals of like, and the analogies of surfing and using those waves when she puts her hands in to sort of feel it as it's going, that's really intentional to make it look more like what we would think of with waves. So the viewer isn't pulled out by going like, wait, what's going on? I thought they were waves, you know? Mm. (laughs) So it's one of those moments where you kind of just have to be like, okay, okay. Like I get it. We'll concede because I mean, because it serves more people better as opposed to the 1% of people who are like, well, actually gravitational is, <laughs> if it is even 1% of people, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it will know that they, they behave slightly differently. <laughs> well, it totally makes sense now why LIGO is shaped like an L. I remember visiting one of the LIGO <laughs> sites, um, the one in Washington state when I lived in Seattle. And I was so impressed by these two huge tunnels that went what was it like several kilometers in one direction? Yeah. I think not 5k, I think three, 4k, 4k in one direction. And then exactly perpendicular to it, another tunnel that runs 4k in the other direction. And now I know why there were two tunnels at 90 degree angles. That's amazing. Awesome. (laughs) Very good. Cool. So there were also several times throughout the season where we saw physics equations shown <laughs> on screen. I'll just list a couple that I noticed. One was when Stamets was trying to figure out the DMA in main engineering. Another was when Oros and Tarka were trying to figure out how to escape from their emerald chain prison. And the last was when the 10C sent an equation for the DMA's shape or volume uh, as part of their first contact communication. Um, these physics equations all looked very physics-y to me, and I have no expertise uh, in in saying whether or not they actually meant anything. Aaron, do they mean things? And were you consulted on writing these equations? I mean, without sounding a little too arrogant, I did write them. <laughs> <laughs> so it was literally your handwriting. Literally, was... yeah. Well, I'm arrogant were... at all. You did write them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we were, jo- I got a chance to kind of joke with Anthony Rapp about that, that Stamets has my handwriting. And so they, because <laughs> that one was much more extensive. That was like multiple pages worth. And what we were doing was really breaking down the various stages because in that episode he's trying to figure out what the dma is and he thinks it could be a wormhole 
wormhole, but he's piecing the various parts of it together. And so kind of that first page that they're looking at is basic general relativity equations. The next one is looking at the wormhole, the Rosen bridge equations back from, you know, the seventies and kind of playing with them a little bit. And then the next couple of pages were all about exotic matter and how that interacts with wormholes. And so they were pulled piece here and there. I didn't like derive them from scratch, (laughs) (laughs) but they were, they were from kind of papers and studies that were based on that and then consolidated all together. And then, yeah, the, um, the Tarkin Oros ones, that was a little bit it was sort of the same thing. It was looking more at cosmology equations, the shape of our universe, because they were looking at like multiverse theory. So mm. we pulled a lot of cosmological equations and just looked at our universe, how it's shaped. They were really high level, big picture cosmology equations. And then, yeah, the volume for a convex lens, that was, uh. <laughs> that was the, the shape that they sent to them. So yeah, it was, it was really fun. And I got to say the graphics team, um, Timothy Peel is the lead graphics VFX artist. He's awesome to work with. Like we had so many back and forths about the equations and making sure that they all looked right. And so we really put a lot of effort into making sure. So I really credit the team with that one. Wow. That's an amazing story. Cause every time I saw a physics equation on screen, I was like, did Aaron write that? <laughs> and I'm so glad that I, I could confirm it. That's, that's so cool that that was literally your Thank handwriting. You. I will yeah. say that was probably one of the more stressful aspects of consulting because, um, because of my background in general relativity, a lot of my friends are general relativists and they're watching this mm-hmm. and they know. So I just felt like I was on trial. <laughs> I was like, I, <laughs> I really hope it's right. <laughs> Your preliminary exam again. Yeah, right. Exactly. So anyway, it it was really fun. Yeah, You had the biggest blackboard ever (laughs) broadcast to the millions of viewers of Star Trek Discovery. (laughs) I I will say briefly on that too. My parents are not Star Trek fans in the slightest, but they printed out the screenshot of my handwriting in front of Stamets and gave it to me as a Christmas present because they were so proud of my handwriting being on Star Trek. That's so great. <laughs> yeah, really sweet. Wow. What, a, what an amazing story. So um, I guess I just want to ask a little bit more about um, as a consultant, what did you get in the script that uh, or or how did how were you relayed that this was going to be part of your job, that you needed to scribble out all of these equations? And, uh, and how did that come about? It's usually so I typically see what we call the story area, which is the general idea for the episode and then the outline. And then I see the script. And so I get with discovery, they have me in all of those, not all the shows do, but that one I got to be in. And so when I see, especially the outline, it'll say things like Stamets, you know, describes the math going into this. And I just like make the note of like, all right, guys, (laughs) should I be prepared for this? And they're all like, yeah. (laughs) So kind of reading between the lines, kind of anticipating what's coming. Yeah. Very, very cool. So for a long time watching this season, I definitely thought that the DMA was going to turn out to be a natural phenomenon. I thought it was going towards this is a a natural astrophysical anomaly, and we're going to have to do something about it, almost as if it were maybe like an allegory for climate change or something, that this anomaly was actually a result of something that 
we were doing uh, and we would discover that and then we would have to try and fix it. Uh, but in reality, it turned out to be a device that um, a species, species 10C from outside of our galaxy constructed to, as we've mentioned, collect boronite to power their civilization. So there's this quote from Arthur C. Clarke that goes, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Another science fiction author, Carl Schroeder, recently revised this quote to say, any sufficiently advanced civilization will be indistinguishable from nature. I wondered if either of you would like to comment on this kind of idea. I thought that was interesting because that goes, it's almost going in a different direction from what some people have written who are astrobiologists. So you actually might know this better than me, Dr. Wong. <laughs> so um, Lee Cronin, who um, I believe is actually at your alma mater, uh, Dr. Aaron, he's at uh, University of Glasgow. He's done these sort of, um, what do you call them, agnostic biosignature predictions of what we should be seeing in the context of if we're looking for life on other worlds. And one of the, I remember in one of his papers, it was really elegant. He suggested there's this middle ground. So if you have, let, let's say there's a range of complexity. At one extreme is something super simple. Just, just let's use like letters or words as an example. He does this in his paper. Let's just say it's like a string of A's. Like, okay, that just looks random. It, it looks like it's just something from nature or something that's hyper complex with no patterns where it's just letters just absolutely mixed up together. That's too complex to be associated with life. But there's this middle ground where there's a pattern. So if you have something like we, the people of the United States, you know, you don't tend to have long stretches of vowels. You know, you tend to have like these letters after those letters. There's a set of patterns that go with it, but it's not hyper complex. And he suggests that, that is, you know, one possible way of having an anonymous biosignature. So that's kind of distinct from the hypothesis you were suggesting, which is that, that, that they would be very similar. And in that context, when he says biosignatures, he doesn't necessarily mean purely just like our ourselves or our poop or things like that. But even <laughs> the things that even the things that we make too, there should be some predictable patterns, but a significant level of complexity. Now, of course, that's that's just a first passing. You can't see that level of complexity and say that is life. But it's, it's the, the area where it's best to look for life. Yeah, I think the, the stuff that we talked about was the Kardashev scale, which oh, yeah. is this idea of how much energy a civilization is required and like what means they have to go to to get that. And so the like next stage up from us that I know we actively look for, some people actively look for, is the Dyson sphere, because that indicates that there's a sufficient power source. And in fact, that's what we we had, you know, looking at sort of the origins of the 10C when they go back to their old solar system, there was a Dyson sphere that was around that star. And so showing that they were moving up in that Kardashev scale of requiring amounts of power. But asking if it's distinguishable from nature, I think is really fascinating because I feel like whether it's magic or nature, it's the unknown unknowns. It's the things we don't know what to look for because we're just not at a point where we need anything like that. Beautiful point. Yeah, these are great points, both of you. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, the work that you were talking about there with the complexity biosignatures. I think that's a really good agnostic mindset to be in when looking for life, especially life as we don't know it. Uh, and then the Kardashev scale. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because yeah, we did see those, I guess, Dyson rings in, mm -hmm. in this case, maybe just to look cooler around that star <laughs> instead of a Dyson sphere because the Dyson sphere is just the sphere. <laughs> I don't know, but the rings looks really awesome. Um, and so I guess that brings up a really interesting question that I, I, I never really thought about before, but like, is the Federation a Kardashev scale too yet? Is, so I guess to make it clear for the audience, if you've never heard about the Kardashev scale, uh, I believe class one civilization is when you can use the entire energy resources on a planet 
Two is when you can use all of the energy resources of a star. And three is when you can use the energy resources of a galaxy. And so when we think of species tensi as this super advanced civilization at class two, that's that's really interesting. Uh, but then when we think about the Federation, the Federation's like spread over a, a large fraction of the galaxy, I guess. So it's almost 2.5. Does that mean it's more advanced than species density? I'm getting so confused in my head. I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> what do you think, Aaron? You I think, yeah, well, I think the Kardashev scale doesn't really account for galactic cooperation, I guess, is yeah. really the differentiator there, is that it's because each species within the Federation is like energy independent as far as we I mean, sure, there's a few exceptions that I'm just not remembering, but, you know, there may be class ones or class twos within the Federation, but they haven't required the need to go. And the certainly it's not like the Federation is like figuring out how to resource the entire galaxy for energy. It's, it exists within it, but I think in an energy independent way. So using the Kardashev scale to talk about individual civilizations is useful, but I think when you're talking about a cooperation of civilizations, it might not be as useful. Also That's not directly, I mean, it's associated, but it's not directly related to just range because you could have a mm -hmm. super simple species that's very, very, very widespread. So yeah, that's true. Like bacteria here on earth. Exactly. <laughs> that's the analogy I was yeah. thinking of exactly. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Amazing. I, I love that, that uh, something that is missing from the Kardashev scale framework is cooperation and wasn't cooperation like a huge part of the theme of this uh, mm -hmm. season as well. Yeah. Uh, amazing. Yes. Okay. So let's turn to species 10C now. Um, these creatures are endemic to gas giant planets and they live sort of amongst the clouds trekmovie.com did a whole article speculating whether the 10C were inspired by a science paper that was written by Carl Sagan and Ed Saltpeter in 1976 that hypothesized about an ecology of floaters and sinkers, these alien creatures that would live in the gas layers of Jupiter. Mohammed, did this scientific work serve as an inspiration for the 10C? No, so I can't say for sure because, you know, I wasn't, I didn't create the 10C. Mm. I mean, I know of that paper and I know if you just Google in general, like you'll get this video that has things that are, that are based on that paper. I think it, can, it came from one of Carl Sagan's uh, TV shows too. So I'm sure it was seen. Like, was that an important part of the inspiration? I know, I mean, to some extent it was, it was very much, as far as I remember, the discussion was very much on first principles. Like what would be there on a gas giant? Okay, well, it should be something that uh, that would be floating. This, and Dr. Aaron, by the way, I should stress, was involved in these in these discussions as well. Because I mean, I don't know anything about gas giants. <laughs> right? But you know, it was very much a conversation of like, what would exist? And it, it couldn't be microbial because from day one, they wanted these things to be big. So it has to be something that's like, essentially like floating on the gas that's circulating up and down and like the updraft. So it had to be something like that. So, I mean, I think there's likely just a lot of convergence as opposed to like, this was drawn from that paper kind of thing. I don't, I don't think that was yeah. the case. I would agree. Cause I think that paper has been around for so long, but the general concept has just permeated through yeah. the search for extraterrestrial life. And I mean, even to our own ideas of how we can move to other planets, you know, living on the surface of Venus is not possible because of the air pressure, but living one bar in Venus's atmosphere could be, right? we can't breathe it very well. As, but... you, had a, as you had a paper about Dr. Wong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, uh, the Venus paper that, uh, yeah, yeah, that was about, <laughs> that was about, uh, well, oh my goodness, what a story to tell. Um, so there, there was, there was a paper uh, from a different group that came out about whether or not phosphine was yep. a biosignature in Venus's atmosphere. And this, you know, made headlines in the New York Times and everywhere else. 
And so my old group at the University of Washington, we sort of looked at this uh, claim a little deeper and uh, we decided that actually that absorption feature that uh, phosphine, uh, that they thought they saw that indicated phosphine is very, very close in wavelength to the absorption feature of another gas that we do know is definitely in Venus's atmosphere, which is sulfur dioxide. So we published a paper saying that the uh, purported detection of phosphine could be explained by normal mesospheric amounts of sulfur dioxide. It doesn't mean the phosphine. Yeah. (laughs) Drama ensues. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I I wish I could. uh, Well, we probably don't want to go into all that. But (laughs) love it. uh, Yeah. I'm not saying the phosphine isn't there. And I'm definitely not saying there can't be life on Venus, but uh, but it's insufficient proof. Insufficient proof. Exactly. Yeah. 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 For sure. Um, I thought they cut you off, Dr. Mattel. I wasn't sure if you're going to say some more. No, no, no. Yeah, no. I think that that was pretty much it. Of just this idea that, yeah, that that idea has been around for a while, and so pulling out that paper, I think that's just kind of permeated anyone who's worked in extraterrestrial searches that things could live in the atmospheres of gas giants. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mohammed, you mentioned that you don't know very much about the atmospheres of gas giants, but you do study things that fly namely flies. Yeah. <laughs> so, so do you have any thoughts as an actual biologist about alien life that lives their entire life cycle without touching anything solid that just live in the atmosphere? Yeah. So, I mean, as is generally true when we're looking at any kind of life, the most likely thing to do anything is usually microbial. <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, we know there are species here on earth, you know, these microbial species are just found at high altitudes. They just live out there their whole lives. Could that happen? Sure. And and could it be something larger? In principle, I don't see any reason why that wouldn't be the case. I can't think right off the bat of, of something like bird size or larger that never lands, but I, I don't see any in principle reason why that couldn't happen. Now, if it was going to happen, the perfect place would be a gas giant because it like if it did land, it would be very, very bad. <laughs> the pressure <laughs> we'd be encountering would be terrible. So yeah. I mean, here when there's an alternative, there's not there's not a need to do that. But Mother Nature loves uh, filling in places where there's need. So <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, this 10C homeworld that uh, the crew ventures to first it happens to be a former gas giant. It's actually the evaporated core of that gas giant. And so when the away team goes down to the surface, which they can walk on, they find the fossilized remains of the 10C. And Dr. Colbert discovers um, that what they're looking at is a 10C nursery because the methylation profiles of the fossils <laughs> indicate that uh, they were looking at youthful organisms. So, Mohammed, could you please break down uh, sure. what this means? What is a methylation profile? Sure. And can this structure survive in a fossilized form for a thousand years? Yeah, well, I might, I might hedge a little bit on that last part. <laughs> 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 so in principle, what happens is we have our DNA. So our DNA is usually made of these four different building blocks that we abbreviate ACGNT. And we tend to think of that as the information content of our genome. But in fact, there's more to it. DNA is packaged in certain ways. And sometimes there are molecules that are attached to it. And one kind of molecule that's sometimes attached to some genes is this sort of CH3, which is a methyl group. So carbon and three hydrogens together. And typically speaking, when you have methylation, that can affect how much of a particular gene is being produced at a particular time. So if it's heavily methylated, it may not be producing quite as much product. And essentially, it's equivalent to, you know, if you're reading a book, it's kind of like putting a, a strike through where, you know, it's not, it's, not, it's not being seen as much in the sense the words are still there, but they're not being expressed anymore. 
So this happens and methylation patterns do change with age. I mean, there's a, there's a difference in amount and there's also a difference in distribution with age that I think if I remember correctly, if you're very young, it tends to be very even across the genome. And as you get older, it tends to get more and more patchy in certain areas. So yeah, there is something that's referred to as like a, an epigenetic clock. So methylation is one kind of an epigenetic modification. There's an epigenetic clock where you can infer from you know, looking at DNA and there's a way of, of getting, uh, there's a way of studying the DNA to see where those methyl groups are, are binding and to estimate what somebody's age would be. So yeah, in principle, that actually works very well. Now, <laughs> would it persist in fossils? I mean, the, the easy answer there to toss out is aliens works differently there. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe. <laughs> I'd never heard of this methylation clock. Epigenetic clock is the way they call it, but it is based on methylation. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Right. Epigenetic clock. Yeah. Wow. That is really wild. It's I, pretty I wonder, cool. Yeah. I wonder what time my methylation, my, my epigenetic clock is <laughs> <it> is right now. <laughs> well, the nice thing is you can change it, right? It's not something where it's, it's not a hundred percent linear, but like your behavior paths can change mm. like your epigenetic modification. So huh. are you just telling so us to drink more water? There you go. <laughs> Exercise, don't smoke, all the usual stuff. <laughs> Wait, so just to be clear, though, could I de-age by changing my epigenetics, my methylation? So profile? you could change the clock. Would that de-age you is a different mm, question, right? So you could change the clock, but that's not, I mean, it's kind of like daylight savings time. You haven't really changed necessarily that much, right? <laughs> all right, all right, yeah, yeah. Just wondering, maybe because... it, it may. I'm sure it does have it because I mean, epigenetic uh, patterns do have an effect in general. So I mean, it might you know be good in some ways, but I couldn't promise you that that reverses the aging process for sure. No, yeah, I, I suspected this would be the answer. I just wondered because maybe uh, you know, there's a lot of instances in Star Trek where they age rapidly and then they have to de-age themselves. Yeah, <laughs> so maybe yeah, that's yeah. the way they do it. <laughs> oh, there. I mean, I bet what they sometimes do, and this has come up in Enterprise and some others too. Is I'm sure some of that is based on telomere shortening. So telomeres are the the ends of chromosomes. There's like a, there's like a cap at the end of each chromosome, and it's usually like this long, like long set of repetitive sequences. In fact, actually, literally just today as we're talking, the first full, and this may be a surprise, the first full human genome was just published in Science Magazine today. And you may be thinking like, wait, wasn't that published in like 2001? No, that was like 92, I can't remember the exact fraction, 92% of the human genome. But those long repetitive areas, you know, in the middles of chromosomes, at the ends of chromosomes, they couldn't assemble them very well. But they actually just today finally published the first full, like, end to end of all the human genome. I think it was missing the Y chromosome, but otherwise it was, it was all there. So. Wow. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, those, those, so those repetitive sequences at the tips, the telomeres, they actually tend to shorten with age. And, you know, basically, essentially, this is important for replication that like, as you shorten, like there's not much there at the very end, but after it shortens to a point, it starts actually taking out actual genes that sometimes genes you actually needed. And mm. that's part of the, that's at least thought to be one contributor to age-related decline as you start, you know, you've lost that, that cap and now it's actually like losing good stuff. Interesting. So, wow. Yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> that was mentioned briefly in Enterprise. And actually, credit to Dr. Aaron for pointing that one out to me because I actually missed that reference in Enterprise. I was like, oh man, I'm going back to that. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So I was way off topic. Sorry. <laughs> no, that was wonderful. Uh, you know, I, I love it. Keep keep going off topic as long as it's you know all amazing science that's blowing my mind. <laughs> Feel free anytime. <laughs> yeah. So another thing that they discovered on this planet, the uh, remnants of the 10 Seas homeworld, mm -hmm. is that 
they discover that the Tensi use these complex hydrocarbons to mm -hmm. communicate emotions to one another. And mm -hmm. this helps the crew lay the foundation for uh, their eventual communication with these aliens. So are hydrocarbons actually used to communicate between animal-like species and or convey emotions in real life? Yes, <laughs> they're absolutely. So I'm very excited about this because one of the earliest discussions we had was back in July 2020. And, and one of the things that the showrunners were asking was in the context of we want their communication to be truly alien. We don't want it to be something that they're just going to pull out a universal translator and like, oh, this is what they're saying or, or, or be automatic like, like is often happening. So, you know, we talked about a couple of different things, but I strongly, I strongly pushed for this idea of chemical communication because this is something that's very, very widespread in the animal kingdom, but it's very alien to us in the sense that like, we don't use that at all. In fact, we actually kind of, we're, we're, we're unusually bad in, in terms of our sense of smell. Like we actually lack what a lot of vertebrates have. They haven't, so we have a nose, of course, for smelling it and we taste, which is another sort of form of sensing chemicals, right? We don't have this other organ called the vomeronasal organ, which so many other vertebrates have. In fact, even I think some new world monkeys have it as well, too. But somehow the old world monkeys, including us, lost that organ. So we actually lost a lot of our ability to, to sense chemicals the way these other things have. And often what those things are associated with is pheromones. So pheromones are, of course one of the predominant forms of chemical communication. You know, when people think pheromones, they immediately like go to sex. It's like, oh, it's for attracting mates. Like it doesn't have to be. It's literally just a form of chemical communication. So, you know, like when an ant is leaving a trail for others to follow, that's a pheromone. That's not, you know, they're not all mating with each other on that trail. Maybe they do, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, no, this is something I push for. And, and yes, and in fact, in insects, including in Drosophila, they, they often are mediated through hydrocarbons. And they're, they're, they're more cuticular hydrocarbons, so in the cuticle on the outside of the insect. And they're, they tend to be non oh, actually it's a funny story i'll tell you in a second they tend to be non-volatile in the sense that they're not being emitted i kept on using this word in the room and everybody kept on getting confused and i kept on saying it's volatile or non-volatile because they kept on thinking explosive i'm like no 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 i just my volatile i just mean like it, get, it goes into a gaseous form not like it doesn't go boom <laughs> i remember when i had that exact same confusion cleared up for me in sophomore year of college when i thought yeah. volatile meant boom and then my professor had to correct me and say no that just means it like evaporates and can be yeah. wafted around in the air exactly <laughs> Just give up so but, yeah, but but this was the idea then is this is like we, there is precedent for hydrocarbons to do that. The beauty of hydrocarbons is the level of complexity you can have is, is enormous because again, carbon can bind to four other atoms and you, know, you can make these long stretches of them and they can be branched and all sorts of complexity to it. So this was a really exciting part to it. And this was something I really liked because this then allowed the linguist. So I should mention now the, the actual language I had nothing to do with, the, the Linkos language and things like that. That was not me. That was the, the folks from METI, the messaging extraterrestrial intelligence folks who came in. So they came, they were brought in, I think, in, in November or December 2020. Mm -hmm. So this is uh, includes Douglas Bacoch, who's the president and founder of METI, and Sherry Wells Jensen, who is both a linguist, a part of METI, and she's especially interested in how you would communicate with extraterrestrial life. And what they had said is like, give us something where we can have like at least say 20 or so different forms. And I can make that into, you know, a form of basically like an alphabet that can be used for communication along those lines. So that's where the hydrocarbons were coming in. So then there's, there's actually, I don't know if you caught, there was actually sort of two layers of complexity with the hydrocarbons. There's the individual hydrocarbons, like the fear one or the, I forget what the love or whatever the others were, <laughs> mm -hmm. but they also were emitted together. And this word got used a couple of times. They were emitted together in a supramolecule. 
right? Yeah. Yeah. So this is something actually I had to talk with one of my organic chemist friends because this was like, this was starting to go above my head too. <laughs> but essentially it's like, think of it like a, like there's a framework and then the, the, these hydrocarbons are kind of stuck on it at, at specific points. And this is something that could in theory be emitted like that. And then you can receive you know, multiple copies of it as exactly that same thing with exactly the same composition. And that was then where the lights part was coming in in terms of interpretation. Like, how do we read this combination? Essentially, think of it like that. That's the sentence. How do you break up the order of the words in this sentence? Wow. That's, that what, that's so where the lights were coming in from. So essentially, when, when Zoro was doing that light thing, she was, she was looking at that super molecule and seeing then the order of these hydrocarbons to read. Right. Yeah. That is so amazing. And, you know, just as uh, Aaron was involved with the visuals of writing the physics equations, were you at all uh, involved with the depiction of these hydrocarbons on screen? Big shout out to Tim Peel again. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic guy. He was so excited about it. Yeah. But the big thing I kept on pushing them about, and they did the, the hardcore stuff. I gave them a couple of different models, like you, know, you can use this kind of that kind, but then they came up with the actual beautiful things that we saw on screen. The one thing I kept on pushing for is that you need these to be complex. It can't be like something simple with like one carbon and four hydrogens. Cause it's like, that's methane. That means like every time somebody farts, they're going to feel you know, something, you know, like fear or whatever. Or maybe <laughs> like, I do feel something. <laughs> <laughs> it has to be something that like they've never seen before because now this is the one challenge we have with this. And this is actually, this is a problem, but the, the kudos, and this is what Star Trek does with things like the Heisenberg compensator or inertial dampers. It was essentially just acknowledged but left as a mystery <laughs> in that why would a pheromone that's, that applies to 10C work on us? Because we're very, very, very distantly related. So this is just acknowledged in the sense that Saru just pointed out like, wow, that's really shocking that it works on me and it works on the... On the uh. But it was never... I mean, there isn't a good explanation for that because I mean, it, it probably, realistically, it probably would. But... If it's something hyper complex, you can't rule it out. Maybe it would. <laughs> so mm -hmm. that, that was like, I suggested one point in time, and this didn't happen. I suggested like, why don't they try it on grudge? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would have been so cute. That would have been, that would have been funny. But actually, realistically, actually, biologically, that doesn't even make sense because grudge is probably more closely related to us than a Kelpian. Because right. I mean, we all evolved on earth, right? Whereas right, you know, right. the Kelpians didn't, so presumably. <laughs> yeah, 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 true. Wow, amazing. Yeah, so um, that was one of my questions for you was, would it, be able to work across species from oh, different yeah. worlds but yeah, uh, that, jump ahead. Sorry. you got no you got it that was that was great and i guess so yeah you already mentioned muhammad that you weren't involved with the language creation aspect of it that was the medi folks aaron did you talk with these medi folks at all not specifically with the creation of the language where i came in with the communication aspect was the really fundamental mathematical principles that they mm. try to decipher for the first time which was figuring out it's like, if anyone, I'm just giving terrible flashbacks to anyone who took linear algebra, but that becomes like the philosophy of math. Like you say one plus one equals two, what is one? Like what <laughs> is plus and what yeah, is love that. equals? Mm -hmm. And it gets real dark, real fast. And so I kind of sat down with the writers one day and I was just like, just strap in guys. Cause we're going to learn a lot of linear algebra right now. And so just figuring out what those equations needed to be, the fact that they had like the indicators for this is greater than that, this is greater than that. And so you could just count and then realize you have a symbol for greater than, and then start to kind of communicate in that way. I, re I really liked, I think it turned out really, really well. Yes, I completely agree. I think this was my favorite first contact in all of Star Trek. Aww. Just, it was oh, that's great. I, I just love how it ended up. And I think, yeah, yeah 
it, it was just scientific, I think. Yeah. Was right. It was yeah. so... I, I love they were really alien, which was their... I mean, that wasn't my idea. That was their idea from the very start. The, 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 like, these are really true. And I said, probably... I think you said this in one of your earlier podcasts, Dr. Wong, too, that like this is probably the closest to what it would be like if we ran into some intelligent life from someplace else. Right. I was just like on the edge of my seat watching these last couple of episodes, trying to figure it out like in real time with the Starfleet officers as they mm -hmm. were going through this process of trying to stitch together the different clues in a scientific way. And they really relied on help from so many other people. I love that theme because this idea of like, you know, diverse groups coming up with more creative solutions, this is something that's well known from the social science literature. And it's really nice to see that directly leveraged there because people have done studies with like, you know, groups that are all from say one ethnic background versus multiple and multiple times they see that the, the more diverse groups come up with more creative solutions. They come up with more solutions, things like that. So it was nice to see that executing. Wonderful. I guess I just have a couple of last questions for you too. Was there anything that you contributed to scientifically or otherwise this season that uh, we just completely missed uh, in the past 45 minutes or so that I, that I didn't <laughs> ask about or that we never talked about, but something that you wanted to highlight um, as a contribution of yours? I, I have two that I'm very excited about. So one, and it's okay, these are super minor, but there's just fun stuff behind it. One was the licorice <laughs> fix. Oh, really? <laughs> so when um, Brino is trapped and she's asking for licorice and it's to like hotwire her equipment, basically, they had this idea. The person who wrote the episode is Kyle Jarrow. They had this idea and then they reached out to me. They were like, we think we see that like licorice can channel a current based on what's in it. And I was like, okay, never heard that before. Let me look into this. <laughs> And it was really vague. Like I couldn't get a straight answer out of it. So I went shopping and found the most pure licorice I could find and like hooked it up to a circuit and it worked. Oh, <laughs> oh my, my God. Goodness. I love the experiment. Yes. And so we have a video of it that actually I just got permission to share. So I'll, I'll share that kind of try to coincide things here, but it's just, it was just bright led lights that we like hooked it up and you could they just dimly light up just through the licorice. It didn't even have to have saliva on it, but wow. um, yeah. So that was really exciting. That was really fun. <laughs> That's amazing. Yes, please send the link and I'll put it in the show notes. Okay, cool. And then um, the other one that we did that is again, really subtle, but ended up being a cool story was the idea of the galactic barrier, because as most people pointed out, this was something from like the TOS era, right? So this was, I think most people were like, all right, canonically, We've talked about trying to escape the galaxy is really dangerous. There's a barrier there. And then we talked about some ideas of like, if that could actually be a thing, what would it be? And then I started thinking about the heliopause, this idea that as particles are leaving the sun, they reach a point where they kind of gravitationally just sit that like the pull of the sun just slows them down to a point that there's just this concentration of energy at this area. And so I extended that to think like, well, what if the galaxy has that? Like, what if the galaxy, which is massive and has its own gravity, well, just has this like galactopause, right? That it's like all the energy that could be trying to leave the galaxy just gets stopped. And so we came up with this idea and it was like, okay. And then we played with the strange energies and all of that stuff from that episode. But then like, must have been a month or two later, I saw a paper published on like evidence of a galactopause. <laughs> Whoa, <laughs> amazing. amazing. Yeah, so it was really cool. It was that someone has done the work on that. And then someone has also found like they did find, I think the heliopause was theorized, but they were able to get enough data to actually see that, yes, there are higher concentrations of radiation that are sort of trapped in the gravity well, right on the edge of the system. And so that was kind of just a cool like, 
check. <laughs> Scientific intuition wins again. <laughs> Fantastic. I love this. Yeah. Wow. I've always thought about that galactic barrier as, oh yeah, that's just something that some 60s sci-fi writer wanted to put in there, but it doesn't actually exist. And yet... Now we know something like it exists, probably not as dramatic as was seen on screen, but yes, something like it. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. The general theory of it. Yeah. Can, can be true. So, yeah. Mohammed, did you have anything that you wanted to add? I was trying to remember if there was something else. I feel like so much of it, and Dr. Aaron alluded to this too, so much of it was such a team effort. It's hard to think of like, was that something that was me? And sometimes I don't even remember, like maybe that was me, maybe not. I don't know. (laughs) I can't think of anything right off the bat, so. It was cool though. Totally nothing as cool as like the licorice and the galactic barrier. <laughs> I just remember too though, like uh, because we were on the cruise while the season was mm-hmm. still airing, and you were joking, you're like, my stuff hasn't even aired yet. Yeah, because <laughs> like, we hadn't met the 10C yet. And like yeah. all my stuff was all very upfront. All your stuff was very much at the end. And yep. yeah, it was yep. really funny. So I mean for me, it was very heavily episodes eleven and twelve. Those were very much the ones I worked on. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, you know, just to close things off, I remember, I think it was a virtual TrekCon panel that we were all on uh, a couple of years ago where um, one of July the- July 2020. Yeah, July 2020. Time flies, right? Like what, what is time these what days? What is time? <laughs> <laughs> You're the astrophysicist. You tell us, what is time? <laughs> we don't know anymore. It's all relative. That's what we learned. We confirmed that it's all relative. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Yep. So at this panel, one of the one of the I guess Outrageous. virtual attendees asked oh. the question, which is the most uh, scientifically accurate Star Trek series? And my answer to that was the one that Dr. Aaron McDonald and Dr. <laughs> Mohammed Noor will contribute to. And I'm just so glad that you two have pulled through and proved me right because season four was just amazing, awash with science, real life science, and uh, stuff that I got to ask about today and got to learn all about today. So um, you know, it was just such a pleasure to be able to speak to you both and thank. Thank you for all of the hard work that you have done putting together Star Trek and putting the science into it. So uh, before we go, I, I, I know you that you're incredibly busy people with many amazing projects going on, you know, new books, uh, a YouTube channel. Please tell the audience all the things that they should be excited about and um, how to follow you on the internet. The couple things that I have coming up is uh, I wrote a kid's board book along with my friend uh, Rob Perlman. It's called Star Trek's My First Book of Space. And then he wrote My First Book of Colors for Star Trek. So together they're like a combined steam thing. So if anyone is expecting children or has friends who have kids this year, it's a perfect gift for them. It's lots of good science and I will say it's the hardest book I've ever had to write. 22 sentences aimed at zero to two years old is real hard (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) to explain space. Um, But it was very fun. And so I'm very excited. There's lots of great little Star Trek references in that. And then, like I said, too, the film that we have coming out is called Every Morning. And that'll be kind of creeping its way into the sphere this year. So keep an eye out for that as well. Thank you. Fantastic. Yes. I'm definitely going to pick up a few copies of that book for friends who um, are expecting. Yeah. Yeah. Great. (laughs) Oh, so for me, I, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and, and Facebook as Mafnor, M-A-F, like Frank, N-O-O-R, my last name. And on YouTube, I have a YouTube channel that's so called Biotrekkie Explained, where I just have these little, usually just very short videos going over one uh, biological concept from a Star Trek series. Right now, we're airing together with my, my good friend, actress Jane Brooke, who plays um, Admiral Katrina Cornwall, we're airing something called Biotrekkie with the Admiral. So every Sunday morning at... 
9.30 Pacific, 9.30 a.m. Pacific. We're airing a new episode where we're discussing like you know two to three episodes and just going over the science in there. So you can tune in. And actually, if you tune in live, there's a live chat when it first airs. Those are about 30 minutes long. There's a live chat when it first airs. And both uh, Jane and I are going to try to be on there as often as possible. So you can you know interact with us while hearing us talk about the topics in the in the in the episodes. They're it was very really good. fun to do that. Yeah. They're very Thank fun. You. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. Yeah. I always love, love watching them. And uh, when I can get the chance, interact with you um, online on YouTube in the chat box. <laughs> Thank you. Very great. Well, thanks again for being on Strange New Worlds. I guess we will catch up again uh, after season five. <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Good. Great. When I was a kid growing up on 90s Trek, I felt constantly inspired by the fictional role models I saw on screen. I wanted to be like Captain Picard, always deciding to do the right thing rather than the easy thing. Or Captain Sisko, boldly standing up for justice no matter how badly the odds were stacked against him. But mostly, I think, I wanted to be like Captain Janeway, so far from Earth but right at home in her zeal for new experiences and new scientific discoveries. Today, I imagine kids looking at those handwritten equations on Stamets' hollow and dreaming of growing up to become an astrophysicist or cosmologist, solving mysteries of wild phenomena that we can scarcely even begin to imagine today. I also see kids watching the crew of the Discovery science out first contact with the 10C, and dreaming of becoming a linguist, or a biochemist, or maybe even an astrobiologist. Like everything else in life, Star Trek has evolved over the years. Discovery looks and feels so different from those 90s shows I grew up on. But at its core, it's still Star Trek. It's still Star Trek. And one major part of that is the show's devotion to science. Now, Aaron and Mohammed, being humble human beings, would be the first to tell you that their roles as science advisors are relatively minor, pointing out that it was the writers or the production team who put in the vast majority of the creative work. But even if they just contributed one thread to the beautiful tapestry of Star Trek Discovery, for me, it is their thread that makes Star Trek Star Trek. Thank you, as always, for listening to Strange New Worlds. If you enjoyed today's podcast, consider leaving a rating or a review on your favorite podcast app, or simply telling a friend about the show. Until next time, stay healthy, stay curious, and I'll see you out there. I've been enjoying your podcast all season too. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I knew your Europa ones now too. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, yeah. You probably can't say a word about Star Trek Picard, but uh, I, um... I can because I don't know anything. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but I'm loving it. So um, okay. I don't yeah. have any words to say, but. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. So thank you again. And um, I'll see you both in person um, in about a week. In a week. <laughs> he said, I'll see you. I was waiting for you to go. I'll see you out there. <laughs> you always end your podcast with. <laughs> no, I'll see you in person. I'm very excited. It'll be great. All right, guys. Travel All right. safe. We'll yeah, see you. Bye-bye. Nice